Well, I'm sure that most people in the room have heard of the five-second rule. But just in case you've been living in a cave, the five-second rule is a rule that states if food spends just a few seconds on the floor, that dirt and germs won't have enough time to contaminate it. Parents sometimes use a five-second rule with pacifiers, but only after the first child. (laughs) And the history of the five-second rule is difficult to trace. One legend actually attributes the rule all the way back to Genghis Khan, who declared that food could be on the ground for five hours and still be safe to eat. But I have some bad news. I don't know if you are aware of this or not, but in 2016, an experiment was conducted that permanently debunked the five-second rule. I know, it's bad news. Donald Schaffner was a food microbiologist at Rutgers University. He reported a two-year study concluded that no matter how fast you pick food up off of the ground, that you will pick up bacteria with it. He tested four surfaces, stainless steel and ceramic tile and wood and carpet, He tested four different types of food, watermelon and bread and buttered bread and strawberry gum candy. They were dropped from a height of five inches uh, and surfaces were treated with bacteria. They tested four different contact times to go with that. So a total of 128 possible combinations of surface food and seconds were replicated 20 times each for a total of 2,560 measurements. And so after the 2,560 measurements, they found that no fallen food had escaped contamination. Professor Schaffner concluded, bacteria can contaminate instantaneously. In other words, they debunked the five-second rule. Cleanliness and purity is a desire of people both in the physical arena and in the spiritual. But the question of what it takes to make a person clean or make a person dirty isn't always an easy one to answer. And in Mark chapter 7, the disciples don't wash their hands. And more than just a mother who scolds their teenager, this kicks off a firestorm that points to some even greater truth about cleanliness before God. So let's read it together, Mark chapter 7. And we start with verse 1. This is what it says. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? 
And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but, not their, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and expelled? Thus he declared all food clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The disciples weren't following the rules, at least not the rules of the Pharisees. They didn't wash their hands before they ate and the Pharisees happened to notice. You see, they had taken the idea of these Pharisees of washing and cleanliness to a whole different level. And it wasn't just for the sake of being sanitary. Their physical washing was actually to point to a ritual cleansing. The Mishnah was a book of traditions and explanations of the law as outlined by different elders and rabbis of the Jewish people. And in many ways, the practice of the Mishnah served as a fence around the law with an attempt to preserve the integrity of the law. In general, the law was considered to be policy. It declared what God commanded, but it didn't declare always how it was to be orchestrated. The oral tradition in the Mishnah prescribed the intent of the law and its execution with elaborate detail. And so it became sort of a guidebook of how to live out the law by the Pharisees. And the traditions that had developed over the years as rabbis debated how to honor God through the law took on many different forms. 
Some of them became quite absurd in their expression of detail. Restrictions on carrying things on the Sabbath, but if you wore the thing that you would otherwise carry, it would not be considered work. Debates about whether or not scuffing your foot in the dirt would be considered cultivating the soil on the Sabbath. And among the primary concerns of the rabbis was the concern for cleanliness and ritual purity through washing. So the Old Testament had laws for priests to wash their hands. Exodus chapter 30, verse 19, Exodus 40, verse 12. But by the time of Christ, the Pharisees had applied the practices of that law, filtered through the tradition of the Mishnah, not just to priests, but to anyone who desired to be considered devout. And so Mark 7, 4 says, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. There's a lot of washing going on, a lot of extra washing that is going on. The Pharisees had added to the law and they were holding other people accountable to it. And so when Jesus and his disciples come and are seen by the Pharisees, they're looking to trap him again. And they ask, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? In other words, Jesus, you are claiming to be from God, but your very own disciples intentionally act in a way that is unclean and impure before God. The question was not a question of mere inquiry. You can tell by Jesus's snappy and fiery response that the question was actually accusation. And the fact that he shot back the way that he did pointed to the fact that their piety is merely pretense. The Pharisees try to show that they are clean before God, but in reality, under the surface, they are filthy and disgusting. And Jesus shows them this in multiple ways. The first one is to apply the quotation from Isaiah 29 right to them. He says to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching is doctrines, the commandments of men. And then he reemphasizes, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. You see, back in Isaiah's time, the people of God, Israel, were giving lip service to God who had provided for them and preserved them while at the very same time they were engaging in the festivals to foreign gods. So you can imagine when God prophesied through Isaiah to them, this was a pointed and damning prophecy. And now Jesus just applied it to the Pharisees for what they are doing. For the Pharisees, 
the Mishnah and the oral tradition of that Mishnah, of the rabbis, that is just as authoritative or binding as the word of God itself from the Old Testament. So for Jesus to simply diminish it to be the traditions of men would be an explosive claim. But he doesn't stop there. He goes further because he calls them hypocrites because they don't even follow as strictly as they impose upon others and they don't apply evenly. They pick and choose which parts of the law and of the Mishnah that they want to follow. The word hypocrite, the Greek term hypocrite, means to play a part on the stage. In the Greek theater, actors would come on and they would wear different masks depending upon what scene. They wouldn't have a hundred actors for a play. They'd have two or three and they would just wear different masks. And so they would have a role. A hypocrite was one who acts a role without sincerity. A hypocrite is a pretender. And Jesus says that all of these Pharisees, with all of their cleanliness, are nothing but pretenders when it comes to purity. And you can't pretend and fool God. And so to drive the stake into the ground further, he shows them just one of the ways that they pretend to be holy but are truly anything but. He refers to a tradition of the elders called korban. This is not a biblical concept. It is from the Mishnah. Korban comes from the Hebrew word for offering. It was a custom of the rabbis derived from the practice of devoting specific goods to the Lord. Korban was similar to the concept of deferred giving. Today, you might find somebody that says, I am going to will my house to an organization of my choosing or to my local church. And I am going to retain possession over that property and use all of its benefit for me all the way until my death. And then upon my death, it would transfer to who it's willed toward. In the case of Korban, a person could dedicate goods to God, withdraw them from ordinary use, although retain control for himself. And in the example of verse 11, we see that a son is declaring his property to be korban, which at death would pass to the temple. And in the meantime, that son retains control over the property with all of its benefits, but deprives his parents of the support that they would otherwise have from that property in their old age. And so it's as if a man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but that he may prevent his parents from getting it. That is a wicked thing. And it's a wicked thing for two reasons. First one is that you know in God's big 10, honor your father and mother is number five. And so by depriving their parents, as is this custom, they're already engaging in wickedness. Wickedness that Jesus reminds them should result in their death. But it gets worse because they're using God as the excuse for their wickedness. 
So in claiming Korban, they're saying, see mom and dad, I, I'm sorry, I just can't help out because I, I've given this to the Lord. Isn't he good? And they're playing a game for selfish gain at the cost of their parents and under the name of God himself. They're hypocrites. Their piety is pretense. And Jesus looked right at them, staring into their souls and indicates, I know what you are doing. You see, there's a problem with trying to justify yourself with the law. There's a problem with trying to justify yourself from the outside through good works. Traditions and the boundaries that men and women put to attain status focus on outward action. They do that because it's easy to measure outward action. However, those who try to be justified before God through the law or through works will inevitably change the law or add or subtract from the law in an attempt to escape it because it's not possible. It's not possible to maintain it completely nor be justified by it. More broadly, those who handle the scriptures, those who read their Bibles daily like many of you but don't seek to obey it or align your lives with it, will ultimately try to bend the scripture to fit a complacent lifestyle. There's a problem with cleaning that comes from the outside. Nothing can choke the heart and the soul of your walk with God more than legalism. Unbiblical rigidity not only distorts God's word, but will ultimately distort the person as well. Consider the story of Hans the tailor. Because of his reputation, an influential entrepreneur visiting the city ordered a tailor-made suit cut by Hans. And when he came to pick up the suit, the customer found that one sleeve had twisted that way and the other sleeve had twisted this way. And one shoulder bulged out and the other caved in. And he pulled and he tugged and he struggled and he finally wrenched and contorted and managed to make his body fit into the suit jacket. And as he returned home on the bus, another passenger noticed his odd appearance. And he asked if Hans, the tailor, had made the suit. Receiving the affirmative reply, the man remarked, that's amazing. I mean, I knew that Hans was a good tailor, but I had no idea he could make a suit fit so perfectly for someone who has such a deformed body. <laughs> you know, that's what we're tempted to do in the Christian life sometimes. When we get an idea that's over and above the Bible about what the Christian faith should look like, then we push that and shove people into some kind of grotesque configuration until they fit wonderfully. It's more than uncomfortable. It actually becomes death. 
It's a wooden legalism that destroys the soul. And so Jesus takes on the legalists with one of the more radical and transformative statements that he had said to this point in his ministry. In verse 14 and 15, he calls the people to him again and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing, nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And with that statement, Jesus rocks the Jewish understanding of the law to its core. By implication, it says that he declares all foods to be clean, that he makes it possible for Gentiles to be clean, and he puts a dagger in the heart of the oral tradition of the Mishnah. The disciples are confused. In verse 17, they ask for clarification of the parable. But it wasn't a parable. (laughs) It was very straightforward in its explanation. So strong, they couldn't understand it. And so Jesus takes it a step further and he explains a little bit more graphically the mechanics of what outside-in cleanliness results in versus inside-out cleanliness. And he says to them in verse 18, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. So what you drink or eat, whether or not you wash your hands or not, they can't defile you before God. It can nourish you or not. It can make you sick or not. It can make you physically healthy or not. But in the end, it doesn't enter your heart. Enters through your stomach, goes through your GI tract, it's expelled. Conversely, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts and sexuality, sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. The word for heart refers to the seat of your emotion, the originator of your will, the place where your desire comes from. What makes you do unclean things, Jesus implies, is that you have unclean desires. Why? Why do you have unclean desires? Because you have an unclean heart. Why are we tempted with sexual immorality or adultery or sensuality, as he includes in the list, because we have unclean desires regarding sex instead of godly desires for sex? Why do you steal and covet? Because in our heart, we want what we can't have and we think we deserve it. Why do we struggle with pride? Because in our heart, we think of ourselves more highly 
than we ought to and God more lowly than we ought to. You get the point. We can go back and trace a heart condition for every single sin that is listed here. And it leads us to an important implication about the doctrine of sin itself. You see, the main problem with our uncleanliness before God is not simply that we commit sins. The main problem with our cleanliness before God is principally that we are infected with sin. At the core of our being, the place the Bible calls our heart, every aspect of what comes out of that heart is somehow touched by the depravity that is within us. The inner life is the problem. And we see that all throughout the Bible. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10, helps us to understand the problem of the heart. It says it's deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So there's a heart condition that results into a particular fruit of deeds that comes, and the Lord knows. Romans chapter 3, 10 goes even further. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Jesus comes and says, if the heart is the cause of the uncleanliness, then the heart is what needs to be addressed. And here's the thing, because all of us struggle with this in some way at some time. Have you ever wondered why you continue to again and again and again just to conform your behavior and you always fall short? It's because if you treat the symptoms of trying to clean up your behavior without treating the disease of the heart, then the symptoms just keep coming back. You're going to continue to fall into the same traps, the same sins, the same temptations that you've always fallen into. Paul talks about this in Romans 6 when he says, before you put your faith in Christ, you're a slave to sin. And what do slaves do? Slaves do exactly what their masters make them do. And if sin is your master and you're only trying to treat the symptoms, then you see where that leads. The root cause needs to be treated. If you're ever going to be truly clean before God, there needs to be a new heart. There needs to be regeneration. And that's exactly what Jesus comes to give. So that begs the question, how can we be cleaned from the inside out? You know, the core of the gospel, the good news of reconciliation to God, the core of it is how we're justified before God. How do we move from dirty to clean from guilty to declared innocent. 
When Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, he died to pay the penalty not just for your sins, but he died to pay the penalty for sin. Big S, infectious disease. He came to deal with the core itself. And that's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. There's something amazing about the divine transaction that happens when Jesus imputes his righteousness to us and takes our sin upon himself. It's akin to one who sacrifices himself for others in the most life-giving of measures. I don't know if you're aware, but this last year, in 2022, the United States recorded its one millionth organ transplant. That's pretty amazing to think about. A milestone that has saved many, many lives. It's unclear which one was the one millionth precisely. But we do know the very first successful organ transplant in the U.S. occurred in 1954 in Boston, Massachusetts at Brigham Women's Hospital when the doctors transplanted a kidney from a 23-year-old Ronald Herrick into his identical twin brother named Richard, who was suffering from kidney failure. The lead surgeon, Dr. Joseph Murray, received the Nobel Prize in Medicine for his role in the procedure. Up until the 1980s, the number of transplants every year remained fairly low. However, success in the transplant organs other than kidneys, such as hearts and livers and pancreases, and the advent of anti-rejection medication led to a rise in the transplants. And since then, transplants have become far more common. In 2021, more than 41,000 transplants occurred in the United States. That's the highest number ever recorded in one year. Sadly, about 5,000 people die waiting for a transplant every year. And the study published in the Journal of American Society of Nephrology found that many donor kidneys in the U.S. go unnecessarily discarded. But organ donors and recipients hope that they share their stories. And as a result, this will inspire more people to sign up to donate and reduce the waiting lists. It's striking to think about the need for a transplant. And it's hard to over... Um, it's, it's hard to overstate the significance of a transplant for one who is waiting and waiting and waiting. God has been in the business of giving people new hearts for centuries. And he does it because if the heart is the problem, it's a cause of uncleanliness, then the heart is what needs to be addressed there is joy for patients who receive a new heart in a physical transplant, and yet that joy is bittersweet because it comes at the cost of a heart for someone's life. One person loses their life that another person would gain a life. And that is exactly what Jesus does on the cross for you and for me. He provides a new heart. He makes a way for you to be clean before God. And so the question then, just very simply and practically, is how is your heart? 
You don't know? What do the sins that you're struggling with say about the condition of your heart? What do they reveal? I want to highlight just a couple of wonderful implications about this radical message of Jesus. First, when we sin, let's recognize the root heart issue and try not just to change behavior, but ask God to change your heart. When the heart changes, behavior will change. God, I ask you to forgive me for my materialism. In my heart, I'm seeking to find fulfillment in things that I'm not intended to fulfill me. God, I'm sorry for my selfishness. In my heart, I think more highly of myself than I should. God, I'm sorry that I only function on my schedule and my time. In my heart, I continue to struggle with elevating my self-importance. God, forgive me for my lust and for objectifying members of the opposite sex. In my heart, I'm seeking pleasure outside of its intended boundaries. When the heart changes, the behaviors will follow. Second, some of us struggle with the notion that Christianity has all of these rules and you don't want to be in a religion of rules, but you want to focus on relationship. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that cliche, Christianity is not a religion of rules, it's a religion of relationship. And in some ways, that expression can be the right sort of pushback against unbiblical legalism. And in other ways, it could potentially just be an excuse for sinful behavior. But here's the important part, and that is this. The Christian life and Christian actions and Christian behaviors are not birthed out of external conformity. The problem with the ones that you know who don't follow Christ, or maybe even yourself, are not the problems of simply following the rules, or simply going to church, or not saying certain things, or not doing certain things, or not consuming certain things. If you treat it that way, you will always fail, and you will always be unfulfilled. The choices that we make to obey God or not come from within. If the heart is the cause of uncleanliness, then the heart is what needs to be addressed. And if you don't desire to do the things of God, you read his word and you say, I don't want to do that. Then the problem is not just that you will yourself to external conformity. The problem at that time is that you need to ask God for a new heart. And he's so generous to give it. Thirdly, 
let me make a brief observation or comment about the nature of hypocrisy. Because you will hear, and I hear with some regularity, from non-Christian friends or Christian friends who have been hurt in some ways, that they don't like to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. You ever hear that before? Let's be clear. The church is definitely full of sinners, including me. People who need new hearts. People who, when they get new hearts, still struggle in their flesh. People who, by God's power, through the Holy Spirit, are in a process of transformation from the day of their conversion until the day of glory, being transferred from one degree of glory to another. Now, if you are one who thinks that you are more righteous than you are or wants to find your purity and righteousness merely in reference to all of the people around you, if you believe that your legalistic actions is what makes you pure, then you will become a hypocrite if you're not one already. Legalism always breeds hypocrisy, always. But if you trust in Jesus and his righteousness is applied to you, and he regenerates your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you humbly cling to him, and you follow him as your king for your days, then not only will you not be a hypocrite, but you will find joy in growing obedience. If the heart is the cause of the uncleanliness, then the heart is what needs to be addressed. And the picture of God's people at the end of time is the picture of a people who are clean and pure before God, a purified bride who marries a perfect bridegroom. So as I close, just hear it with me. Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 6. And I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Where do those righteous deeds come from? They come from a new heart. Let's pray. Father, there are some among us today who have been laboring and toiling through external conformity to a pattern of life through good works. And they need a new heart. And so I pray today that you, as you so often do, would powerfully overcome in regeneration. There are many of us who have new hearts and still wrestle with the flesh that we have 
and our sins go before us and we're grateful for the forgiveness that Jesus offered and we pray that you would continue to transform our hearts. We long for the day where this struggle for sin is no more. We rejoice in the purity that you and you alone give us by your son to stand before you. And we long for that day. And until that day, we pray that you would keep us. In your mighty name, amen.